Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy. I had to develop these skills to be successful as a manager and a leader, right? I knew if I want to be a CTO, a chief technology officer, that didn't simply mean I was a good programmer. In fact, I'm a worse programmer today than when I spent most of my week coding. <laughs> yeah. But I need to learn how to hire people, how to lead people, how to create a budget, how to explain complex ideas to non-technical people. I need to know conflict resolution and team building and negotiations. All these skills they never taught me in school. So I began to develop these skills. And then when I was hiring... I would look for these skills in other people. Now, if I asked them an engineering question, I'd get an engineering answer or accounting or marketing. But when I asked what makes someone a good leader, I would get a blank stare because no one else learned this either. I'm Srini Rao, and this is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who've started movements, built thriving businesses, written best-selling books, and created insanely interesting art. For more, check out our 500-episode archive at unmistakablecreative.com. Mark, welcome to the Unmistakable Creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, it is my pleasure to have you here. So uh, I found out about your story because you wrote in. And as I was saying before we hit record here, there was one line in your bio that caught my attention, which was chasing terrorists on the dark web. But I was like, okay, this is a story I want to tell because that, like many of the people I interview, is not something that a high school guidance counselor is going to say, this is what you should do with your life. Uh, But before we get into all of that, I want to start by asking what I think is a very relevant question, given your background and your work. And that is, what did your parents do for work? And how did that end up shaping and influence of the choices that you made with your life and career? I have what I think of as the stereotypical Jewish parents for their generation, My father was a physician. He's retired now. (laughs) And my mother was an elementary school teacher, although she stopped to raise my brother and I. So very classic Jewish parents, very education focused. And in my dedication, I thank them for teaching me the value of learning because that was something they emphasized throughout my childhood. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, like I, I laughed because I feel like every Jewish desk tells me this and it's kind of literally the, the overlap with, you know, Indian parents narrative about careers. You know, you want a good life, become a doctor, lawyer, engineer, and your dad being a doctor, your mother being a teacher. Uh, I wonder, were they insistent or were they, you know, did they give you any advice about making your way in the world or choosing a particular career path outside of the importance of learning? 
No, they were very open. They said, whatever you want to do that makes you happy. My brother majored in theater and performed on stage for a number of years. And they said, if that's what you want to do, we will support you. So they they were very good about being open uh, compared to some of my friends who Indian and uh, other Asian friends whose parents all said, your choices are doctor, engineer, maybe accountant. Uh, mm-hmm. So my parents were pretty open. So why do you think that is? And, and why do you think that that's not more common? And then as an educator at one of the most elite institutions in the world, what do you see when it comes to, you know, sort of generational narratives and advice that people get from their parents uh, when you look at your own students? I read an article years ago about the vanishing Jewish doctor, right? Because it's <laughs> that stereotype, right? Uh, Jewish doctor. If you want a doctor, get the Jewish one. But of course, now there's far less Jewish doctors. And that's not necessarily a, a bad thing. We see a lot of Indian doctors, for example, and they get pushed towards medicine for the same reason Jews did going back 50, 60 years. When a group comes to the country, comes to the U.S. as immigrants, they want their children to do better. Medicine mm-hmm. has probably been more meritocratous than other professions. When you think about the white shoe law firms, when you think about Wall Street, it was very much an old boys network that Jews and non-white people didn't have as easy a time getting into. But medicine was very much be smart, do well. You get a job as a doctor, you can have a very good income. And so immigrants saw this as a good path to the next stage, right? Having the children do better. Because Mm -hmm. Jews have now assimilated so well, done so well, been successful, the next generation, the generation that I'm in, they haven't felt the need to, you have to do this because we're poor and struggling and this will take you to the next level. They've reached it. But newer immigrants, many of my Indian friends and possibly uh, your family as well, came in that that next generation saying, okay, we want to push you the same way the Jewish parents did 50, Mm -hmm. 60 years ago. Yeah. Well, I mean, this is something I mentioned on the show before, but I, I think context also plays such an important role here because, you know, as a, you know, sort of creative misfit who rebelled against all of this, I used to think for the longest time that my parents' advice was misguided. But then I realized they grew up in a time when their life outcomes were binary, where it was poverty or security, nothing in between. So choosing security, you know, made a hell of a lot of sense at that time. And, you know, I think that that's changing. So, you know, you mentioned that, uh, you know, every generation basically wants the generation after them to do better. And as you know, for the first time in probably, you know, decades, we're actually seeing the exact opposite of that happen, um, where, you know, I was just telling you about my parents' house and my friends and I were joking the other day. I was like, man, I couldn't even afford to buy the living room at my parents' house right now. <laughs> you know, uh, And that's not, you know, where we ever thought we would end up. Uh, you know, so particularly in the, in the context of, of an educator, you know, what do you make of that, you know, especially as an educator at one of the most elite institutions in the world? We're seeing the bifurcation of the American class system. I'm sure the listeners have heard many times the middle class is shrinking. And so what's happening is those falling on the one side of the divide, typically that are STEM-oriented careers, we tend to be more and more in demand and are getting better compensation, better salaries. Those falling on the other side of it are just seeing their their contributions get automated away, right? And mm-hmm. this goes into that larger discussion 
okay, what's happening to the jobs of the future? We are seeing that rote tasks get automated. Now, all of us have rote tasks. Even as a software developer, I had rote tasks. Lawyers have rote tasks. And so yeah. if the value you're providing is a rote task, whether that's working on the assembly line or whether it's um, consolidating papers, putting covers on the TPS reports, that's going to be automated away. But when you're doing higher value work, creative work, higher analysis, that's what's going to be in demand. And unfortunately, those are not skills that we have been emphasizing in our education system. Yeah. Well, I, I do want to come back to to the education system. And it's it's funny you say that because one thing that I always said is, you know, you look at new tools, new technology, and they make all this sort of unparalleled creativity possible. And I, I said, you know, once that it isn't technical proficiency that's going to matter in the future. It's going to be your ability to imagine what's possible with each of these tools, because technical proficiency seems like it's becoming more and more of a commodity as you automate things. I mean, there's a new editing tool that I found for proofreading. And it's not Grammarly. It's like a whole other level where it was like, oh, we don't need our assistant to proofread anymore. Because literally with the push of a button, I'm getting the most accurate proofreads I've ever seen. And we'll continue to see growth in that area. We'll continue to see growth in just discovery, right? In finding and gathering information. We'll continue to see growth in correcting information. But it's that synthesis of information, that is the key. And that's where we're going to continue to add value as humans. Yeah. Well, I have to ask you, I mean, you'll, you've had this really interesting career path um, that seems like a, a pretty windy road uh, <laughs> that goes in a lot of different directions. Like I said, that included, you know, chasing terrorists on the dark web. How in the world did you end up uh, doing that? And how did that lead to what you're doing now? It's not as random as it may seem once it comes into a large context. So I graduated MIT in the 90s with a couple of technical degrees. It's a dot-com era, so I started out mm. as a software developer. And quickly I realized I wanted to move into management. So I began to develop the skills that I needed to become successful in that role. I worked for classic startups. I helped Fortune 500s play startup. And I even helped a couple academic programs, I'll explain in a moment. So as I'm going about doing this, I worked in multiple industries. I've been media, ad tech, labor markets, and home services. I've developed new software languages, but I've also done cybersecurity. My graduate work at MIT was in cryptography. Cryptography is the field of making and breaking secret codes. That's what keeps your credit card safe online. That's what puts the S in HTTPS. And one of the companies I came across, they were basically doing intelligence gathering on the dark web. Given my background building systems and cybersecurity, I was a natural fit for coming in as a CTO. They had just gotten their first round of funding. So I was able to architect and build the product and grow it out uh, to help the company grow. So I spent some time doing that. Certainly, that was probably one of the more interesting parts of my career. Now, I mentioned I had to develop these skills to be successful as a manager and a leader. Right? I knew if I wanted to be a CTO, a chief technology officer, that didn't simply mean I was a good programmer. In fact, I'm a worse programmer today than when I spent most of my week coding. <laughs> yeah. But I needed to learn how to hire people, how to lead people, how to create a budget, how to explain complex ideas to non-technical people. I needed to know conflict resolution and team building and negotiations. All these skills they never taught me in school. So mm -hmm. I began to develop these skills. And then when I was hiring, 
I would look for these skills in other people. Now, if I asked them an engineering question, I'd get an engineering answer or accounting or marketing. But when I asked what makes someone a good leader, I would get a blank stare because no one else learned this either. And so I realized I had to train up my team. I had to build instead of buy. I couldn't hire for it, so I had to train folks. Now, around this time, MIT got similar feedback. And other universities have also gotten similar feedback that companies are saying, we don't just want people with their technical domain knowledge. And again, technical here, not just software, means whatever your discipline is. We want people who are leaders, good communicators, good team players, have thought through the ethics, good negotiators, all these other skills that schools aren't teaching. So MIT began to put together this program and I heard they were doing it. So I reached out and said, I've been working on this. Can I be of help? Shared with them some of what I've been doing, helped develop some of the curriculum. And then they asked me to help teach, which is what I've been doing for 20 years. So I've had this mm-hmm. second parallel career teaching yeah. these skills at MIT and elsewhere. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this. You're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. 
With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember, folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. So I want to come back to, to the education piece, but I, I have to. You know, the funny thing is when you mentioned chasing terrorists in the dark web, the first thing that came to my mind was Silk Road. Uh, and so I guess for me, the, that becomes a question of, you know, sort of ethics and policy and, uh, you know, war on drugs. I mean, this is like a whole rabbit hole that probably has nothing to do with, you know, your main expertise. But, you know, like, what do you make of all that? Because on, on the one hand, yeah, this guy's like a billion dollar, you know, criminal, you know, mastermind. And at the same time, you like you look at all of it and you're like, maybe this would be the safest way for people to consume drugs. Because what we've seen is when you decriminalize in places like Portugal, it actually decreases drug use. And instead of the situations that we're here, you know, we have here, which is endless amounts of crime and violence, you actually end up with, you know, regulated drug use in which people are actually going to rehab facilities. And, you know, rather than treating this as a uh, criminal problem, they, they approach it as a health problem. There's a couple different questions implied in that. So the yeah. first has to do with simply the dark web. Now, everyone asks, what exactly is the dark web? The dark web are parts of the web that are not as visible. If you pop a web page, I can go find in Google or Bing or another search engine. So it's very visible. The dark web is not as accessible. It's not well indexed. Now, it doesn't mean it's necessarily bad. I always tell people criminals do bad things in a dark alley and not the well-lit street, but doesn't yeah. mean all dark alleys are inherently bad. If I recall correctly, Tor, so Tor is the protocol, the onion router and the protocol that goes with it, uh, that lets you do things without being tracked on the dark web. Tor, I believe, was created by the CIA. I read mm -hmm. this in an article years ago. I should have confirmed it before this interview. Uh, I didn't know we were going to go down this path. And the reason the CIA did that is because they had operatives in the field in certain countries who needed to communicate back to the CIA, but without being tracked, right? If the, if the particular country's government said, why is this random person connecting to a server in Langley? That's going to be a tip-off. So they created Tor, so they would hide how they're connecting. And this is true of all of our tools. Being able to do something anonymously let CIA operatives report back. It lets dissidents in China fight for freedom, but it also lets terrorists fight for their version of freedom. And this mm -hmm. is true of any tool. A knife can take a life in the hands of a criminal or save a life in the hands of a surgeon. It's all just how we use it. Yeah. Wow. Let's talk specifically about education. You know, I think that what struck me most was you opened the book talking about planning. And so, you know, I'll, I'll tell you a story to give you context. I was a Berkeley undergrad. Berkeley is full of the types of students who come to MIT, um, you know, ambitious, driven overachievers who have this very clear plan for their life. And I remember the third week of school going to a career fair, which is idiotic, like thinking about, you know, a career fair three weeks into school. And this recruiter Accenture said, you know, uh, he was like asking me, what are you going to major in? I said, probably English. And he said, yeah, we don't hire a lot of English majors. And I never took a single English class or a writing class after that. 
And to this day, I've never once applied for a job at Accenture or been interviewed for a job at Accenture. Um, but yeah, you know, because I remember Tina Seelig uh, from Stanford came here and she's told me, she said, you know, we have two kinds of students who come to us, ones that have their entire life mapped out in front of them. And then those who are there to explore, but are also afraid they don't have any all consuming passion. And she said, it's usually that second group that actually ends up finding much more fulfillment and becoming much more successful. Um, so with that in mind, let, let's just start with the education system in general. You know, you're in an unusual position in that you're actually bringing in new curriculum, new perspectives that are I think have been long overdue. And to your point, we're never taught in school. Like there are a lot of things we never learned in school that we should have. In fact, my most popular article I've ever written was the things we should have learned in school but never did. And so first, let's start with that. Like, why is it that we didn't start teaching this stuff early on? Like, I feel like you get out of high school and you literally have no idea what to do with your life. And I feel like a high school guidance counselor doesn't guide you on anything other than how to plan your schedule. Yeah, unfortunately not. Uh, high school guidance counselors do, in fact, help students who are typically in difficult home situations, social situations. Yeah. But for students like you or I, who are high achievers, we get good grades, we don't get in trouble a lot, they kind of say, all right, you're, you're fine, you'll figure it out. But we don't always get a lot of help or input. I will give my guidance counselor some credit. She directed me to take a programming class and that got me on the path to computer science uh, whether she saw that in me or just said oh computers are important they sent them this way i don't know but it did help mm -hmm. now why this isn't taught that's because of historical reasons so we have to look at both the high school and university level high school is a relatively modern invention it goes back roughly a hundred years little over and school primary and secondary education was designed to teach us basic skills so we can function in society. Reading, writing, arithmetic. Later on, we had to get some social studies, a little bit of government. Oh, learn a foreign language. This will help you be a little more well-rounded. That's all they were trying to do is make us effective to be functional as adults, to be able to work in factory jobs. Because of course, you didn't need this when you worked on the farm. On the farm, mm -hmm. you just got up and did your work. But in the factory, you had to know how to count. The factory had to know how to read. So that's all high school was trying to do. They weren't trying to turn us into managers and leaders and entrepreneurs. The yeah. university system, that goes back a little further. That goes back about 800, 900 years. And the university system is controlled by professors. Now, they're wonderful people. But when you think about a degree, let's suppose you major in marketing. What happens is you take a certain number of marketing classes that the marketing professors who run the department have said, these are the important ones. Take these classes and then a few extra ones to round yourself out. Now we're going to give you a marketing degree. All that degree says is you have acquired a certain amount of information in marketing. They're not saying you are a good marketer. They're not saying you're a good worker, a good teammate, a good leader. All they're saying is we designate you as having this level of marketing knowledge. And that was sufficient when going back maybe about 75 years, going back to mid-century, when we had hierarchical companies where what you did was told to you by your manager. You're in the marketing department. Your manager says, Johnson, go do this campaign. Get back to me by Thursday. And you do and say, here you go, sir. What do you want me to work on next? And we all just sat as little cogs in the machine. We didn't have to have higher order thinking. We just had to know how to do accounting or engineering or whatever our specific function was. 
recently, as we deconstructed those hierarchies, as we got to flatter organizations, as we got to teams where we start working with different people in different groups, we've suddenly needed a different set of skills. But that only goes back about 30, 40 years. And the university systems, being very slow, have not yet responded. I think, unfortunately, it's going to take another 30 or 40 years until they catch up. So, okay, with with that in mind, I mean, we're in obviously one of the the biggest crises we've ever seen when it comes to student loan debt. Uh, You know, and I feel like so often people are coming out of educational institutions, uh, to your point, without the skills, but they also have this very clear idea that they're going to do something. I think that the thing that I saw, at least, you know, as an undergrad at Berkeley was that we were kind of being conditioned to plan out our entire lives when we'd only lived a fraction of them with almost no data points. It's like people are saying, I want to study medicine when they've never even set foot in a hospital or taken a science class. Uh, So how do you balance that with the need for some sort of a plan uh, without being so rigid about that plan? Because I can tell you, like, this was definitely not part of my career plan, you know, and I got fired from every job that I ever had. And I, I think that nobody ever taught me about the importance of match quality of looking for what's actually a fit. But it was also very clear that you're, it was like we had this clear map, mapped out plan in front of us and none of it has gone according to plan. So, you know, I, I guess, you know, what I wonder is what, what are the ex- existential crises you see with your students when it comes to this? Here are two things that we do wrong. First, to your point, we educate people and say, you're 22, you're done. That doesn't work anymore. Get some primary starting education, let's say in college from 18 to 22, but we need to shift culturally to the expectation that we will continually learn. And that might be a few hours every year. For example, the CME and CLE continuing medical and legal education credits that certain Mm -hmm. professions have to take. We also likely need to shift to every 10 years or so, you might go back for some intensive six-month retraining, upskilling, shift in your career. But the expectation should be it's normal to go back in your 30s and 40s and maybe 50s to get a little more intensive training. And that means we have to adjust our expectations on what your career will look like. Oh, you're taking six months off or six months you shift to part-time because now it's a time in your career when you do this. We have to have support for it financially. Society has to understand this. So there needs to be some large level changes to support this type of model. That's the first thing that has to happen. The second, to your point about match fit, the way we talk to people about jobs is we give them little bits of information about the job, but they're the wrong information. So when we think back to in school, oh, we're bringing a doctor today. What do you do? I take care of sick people. Bring in a lawyer. What do you do? You know, I write contracts. And so we give them a little bit of information, but we don't talk about the important parts of the job that really are where you get this correct match. There are some people who say, I don't want to be chained to a desk. Mm -hmm. Okay, maybe they're a good salesperson. Maybe they're a good field worker. Some people say, I don't want to work for other people. Others say, you know what? I really want a job where I sit in front of the computer all day and don't talk to other people. (laughs) You don't hear people describe this. In fact, if you talk to a lawyer, a lawyer will say, well, if you want to be a trial lawyer, you can do that and you can be in the courtroom and 
you get to sell people on these ideas. That might be exciting. Most lawyers, of course, despite what we see on TV, never set foot in the courtroom. Most lawyers <laughs> so I hear. sit in front of a computer all day and yeah. they don't see a lot of people. In fact, it's great for introverts, but that's not what we see on TV. And that might not be what you hear when the lawyer comes into your fourth grade class. We totally. have to explain what the actual skills are, not the knowledge, but these personality alignments. And that's what we don't talk about with our students. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this. You're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember, folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. Mm. 
Wow. Yeah, no, I, I think that that's, that's spot on. I don't think I know anybody who hates their jobs more than lawyers. Like of all my friends who are attorneys, none of them say that they wish they'd gone to law school. They're always like, this was, I went to law school because I didn't know what else to do. Um, so the other thing I wonder, you know, we talked about student loan debt. Let's talk specifically about uh, a place like MIT, a place like Berkeley. I mean, these were sort of the breeding grounds for what we saw happen with the whole college admissions scandal. And, you know, I, I was watching the documentary about the college admissions scandal that was on Netflix and just watching how much pressure is put on these kids, you know, in places like Palo Alto, where they have the highest teen suicide rate, uh, you know, and there's this just sort of, you know, like, it's either get into this famous college or your life is over mindset now. And you're a teacher at a famous college. I'm an alumni of one. Like, what's the disservice of this? You know, and, and like, how do we fix this? Because like, if you had to redesign this entire thing from the ground up, if you were given the task to say, all right, Mark, you're now in charge of the entire United States education system. How would you do it? When it comes to that kind of, do you want that elite value or not? Uh, unfortunately, I do think it is worth it. It is paying that extra amount of money. Mm -hmm. It is worth putting the extra effort in because if you get into a top 10, top 20, it's a signal. Yeah. Uh, really, it's not the knowledge. In MIT, we were the first university to take our coursework and put it online for free. And that ultimately turned into EDX and then Coursera is similar because MIT said, you know what? It's not the knowledge. It's not just what you get in the classroom that makes you this great person. Mm -hmm. It's the access to professors and the other students and the culture and the environment. And that can be hard to replicate, particularly for STEM universities. Uh, one of the big costs in universities, it is the physical cost. Now, in a few cases, that might be a particle accelerator, but yeah. even just the buildings, the lawn maintenance, all this, these are the high costs. We can hopefully create many more universities that are not as fancy, not as pretty as these old ones, but we can create them where they're semi-virtual, but you can create good groups of students who can continue to encourage and help each other learn and you can create other MITs and Stanfords and Berkeleys that yeah. can deliver the same value. Maybe they won't have the great chemistry labs, but they will have a lot of other good, uh, good value that you can get for the money. So mm. that's the first thing we need to do is lower the costs by recognizing what's important. We can even deconstruct the school because part of what you get at a university is that life experience. It's going away from your parents, yeah. right? And there's value to that. So if you look at the different components, the knowledge you get, the experience with your peers, access to sports and clubs and all these different pieces, if we can deconstruct them, the knowledge in the classroom, that's pretty easy to deliver. Can yeah. we replicate these other services in a lower cost way? And I think that's going to be very important. One thing I always point out Universities have floors, not ceilings. You're going to have a hard time finding a true idiot at a top 10 university. Although I can, <laughs> I can think of a few legacies do sometimes let those in. But yeah. that doesn't mean you're not going to be able to find a genius at even community colleges. And studies have shown that it is your innate ability that is going to lead to success 
when we looked at correlative factor of you went to an Ivy plus school and therefore are successful, the causality is not going to the school. The school mm-hmm. was the result of them being inherently capable and likely to lead to success. So yeah. don't worry if you don't go to these schools. I do think it makes it easier. It does open some doors when you use it correctly, but that mm-hmm. doesn't mean those doors are closed to you if you don't go there. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that it's funny you say that because I think for me, the Berkeley experience, I remember my dad is a college professor as well. And I, his one of his colleagues was here visiting when I was in high school. And I never forgot what he told me. He said that if you survive Berkeley undergrad, everything else in life will be a breeze in comparison. Now, I don't know how entirely true that was, but he definitely had a point. It's not a pleasant place to go to school, uh, you know, not just in terms of the academics, but in terms of living there in general, it's kind of a nightmare. Uh, but suddenly you get out into the real world and things like finding an apartment and navigating parking tickets in San Francisco and dealing with bureaucracy are all things that you just kind of know how to work to your advantage because you've had to put up with so much bullshit for so long. I think that's true of many universities. Some are great at being very supportive of students, but many and certainly some of the the top ones can be a little challenging. And it's a trial by fire. MIT is known to be that way as well. Mm-hmm. So let's let's talk about, you know, uh, a bit more about career planning. You know, when you wrote about career planning, you, you kind of talked about sort of three core areas. One was the planning. The next was working effectively. Um, and the other was interviewing. And I think we've talked a bit about learning about a job. Uh, let's talk about the whole idea of navigating a corporation, because I never really learned this. And I, I think that I was guided down a wrong path. I was basically told that I was a really good presenter and that I should go work in sales. And then somebody changed me to a desk. Uh, and I realized, like, I'm a public speaker now, which is, you know, that was the real skill. And I completely misinterpreted it. Uh, but well, and so for me, I, I have this sort of inherent distrust of working environments uh, because I don't ever feel like anybody's looking out for your best interest because you're pretty much dispensable in any company. But that's just based on context. I don't know that that's entirely true. So let's talk about that. I mean, particularly for your students or, or young people when they're, you know, in this first sort of phase, how do they set themselves up? you know, in a world that is incredibly competitive. And, you know, as Tyler Cowen, the economist says, average is over. The skills I talk about in the book are the ones that are subtle. And if you do them right, they give you a tailwind. And if you do them wrong, it's a headwind that trips you up. So these are skills where you're referring now to chapter two, working effectively, um, navigating a corporation, managing your manager, dealing with corporate col- politics, understanding how you add value. Consider as well, sometimes we have good relationships with our managers, sometimes bad relationships, right? And obviously a good relationship is so much more helpful to your career. You'll be seen Mm -hmm. in a positive light. You're more likely to get better assignments. Your ideas will be heard better. Now, whether or not you have a good relationship, this can happen for, for many reasons. And certainly doing a good job, working hard, being smart, all these will help. But then you have issues like styles. We have all met people where we just naturally click, and then we've met people where it just feels awkward and hard, and we're always talking over each other. And when you break that down, there can be many reasons for it, but one could have to do with style. So here's a really simple example just to illustrate. If someone wants to pitch me a new idea, and I walk into the office 9 a.m. Monday morning and say, Mark, okay, here's what I think we should do. I thought about this all weekend. I want to take us in a new direction, do this. I'm going to go, hold on a second. It's 9 a.m. Monday morning. I am not a morning person to begin with. So you're catching me at the wrong time. And 
catching me in the hallway and pitching me an idea. That's not how I like to do it. I am a process oriented person. So I want you to send me a proposal and talk me through it, right? Something I can read ahead of time where we're going to sit down and do it formally and lay out the numbers and plan for me because that's my style. Other people, they might be, first, they might be morning people, but they also might be big picture people and you want to sell them emotionally. I had this great vision. Here's how we're going to deliver more value to our customers. Here's the future as I see it. And you're going to sell this person in a very different way. Neither of those is necessarily right or wrong in an absolute sense, but for your manager and how she likes to engage, you might want to pick one style over the other. And so knowing little things like this, it's important. Uh, consider within a corporation, some companies, they want to have that open debate in the meeting. Let's put all the ideas on the table. Let's discuss it. Let's see what happens. At other companies, those discussions and debates and decisions happen outside of the meeting. And when you come to the meeting, the decision has already been made. If you are thinking we're going to debate the ideas in this meeting and you show up, and it turns out everyone had the discussion last week and you didn't know about or participate, your idea didn't even get heard. The decision's been made. Understanding yeah. these styles can help or hurt you in any job that you have. It's funny you say that. This was, you know, probably three or four years ago, which is the last time I ever interviewed for an actual job. And I knew right then and there, right after this guy said, you know, I'd asked him about the corporate culture. And the guy said, when we say eight o'clock, we mean eight o'clock, not eight fifteen. I was like, okay, this is not for me. Like you guys are clearly rigid in a bunch of rules that don't have any actual real relevance. Um, you're you're interested in following rules. I'm interested in making change. So like, this is not the place for me. Uh, but you know, I, I think that so often, at least earlier in my career. I never was mindful about those kinds of things. I just, you know, I took whatever I could get. Uh, and so why do you think, like, why do people make choices out of desperation? And the other thing, I saw this firsthand, which, uh, you know, this was right before I went to business school and I never forgot this experience. I, for the first time ever, had two job offers at the same time. And one of them uh, required a commute and I really didn't want to do the commute. And the recruiter called me back every other day and kept increasing the salary by $10,000 until, you know, I, she was paying me like probably 30 to 40 grand more than what the initial ask was. It's, we, we see things like that. And it's very wise that you recognize commute was important to you. I've had the rule yeah. in my life. I will not commute more than 30 minutes door to door until I'm married with kids. And then of course I'm going to change what my parameters are, right? Because I'll have to, yeah. to reweight. But that was important to me as well. For other people, they might say, I don't mind having a commute. We had people commute to our office from Philadelphia every day on the train, but that was the trade-off that they felt comfortable with. Yeah. To the question you asked, I think a lot of people make short-sighted decisions. So here's a very common failure mode I see. At MIT, roughly one-third of the students were majoring in EECS by the late 90s, right? This was the hot area. Everyone yep. wanted to go into it. We had the dot-com crash. And suddenly, in, I think, 2000 or 2001, right around the dot-com crash, the, right around the dot-com crash, the students who were picking their majors dropped to about 20% EECS. Now, it went back up over the coming years. One theory might be, well, the kids born in this particular year were just because of whatever was in the water or they saw on TV, weren't that into EECS. I don't think that was the case. 
they were responding to the market conditions. They said, oh, dot coms, they all crashed. We thought this was a really wonderful field, but it's not. So we shouldn't major in it. And what they've done is they've made a really key decision, right? What field they're going to go off into based Mm -hmm. on immediate short-term data, based on the job prospects today. Yeah. And so we see this as well, people coming out in a recession. Oh, you know what? Jobs in Wall Street, jobs in consulting, jobs in this area, I can't find it. I'm going to take a different job. Now, sometimes you have to do that, right? You might have family obligations. You might have student debt. You might say, I can't wait six months for the job in the field I want. But don't make that long-term plan about where you want to be 10, 20 years down the road based on the job prospects today. If you think this is a field you'll be happy in and there are good job prospects, stick it out for that or make a temporary detour, but have a clear plan for how to get back into that field you want and take this long-term view, not the where can I find a job today point of view as you're picking your career. It's it's funny. I'm smiling as you say that because I I was in Berkeley at the same time that all of this was happening, and you know everybody was switching to computer science. And naturally, you see, you know, I think eBay went public my sophomore year of high uh, college, and then Yahoo fall, it was my senior year of high school. And I remember thinking, I was like, that's it. I have to be a computer science major. I took two computer science classes and realized I was like, I'm horrible at this. <laughs> I'm so bad at this that I it was like this close to getting an F and I had to drop a class. And I was like, okay, I made this choice specifically because I saw what was happening in the job market and it led nowhere. Yeah, it's first and foremost, find your passion, right? Find what you're happy with uh, because otherwise you're going to be wasting your time and and unhappy. I know there are people who say, I want money more than anything else. And if really money is going to make you happy, I don't think it will. But if you're convinced that's the case, fine, pick some high paying job you hate and enjoy the money. Uh, I do know some people who said we want to retire by 40 and they're willing to Mm -hmm. make that type of sacrifice. But it begins by understanding these values. And I have in chapter one, and it's a free download on the website. Here are some starting questions to ask yourself about what is important. Is it the commute? Is it the money? Is it working with other people or hiding in the back room with just a computer and not talking to anyone? These are the questions that are going to help lead you to what might be the right career and the right job for you. Mm. So this is really fascinating to me because it, a lot of the conversations I have here and the kinds of questions that I ask and the kinds of questions that people like you encourage us to ask are the very questions I would have written off as new age bullshit when I was a freshman in college. And like, this just sounds like nonsense. Um, I want the salary and the impressive resume. And I've always wondered why that is like, why is it that we're not self-aware enough at that age to understand the importance of these sort of deeper questions about life? My guess, and admittedly, this is speculative on my part, is because we haven't been around the block enough. And we haven't even fully matured, right? Or brains literally are not fully developed uh, while in college to make some of these long-term decisions. If you think about even just risk-taking, right? Some of the stupid things we do in college when we think, (laughs) yeah, okay, you know, um, I'm immortal, right? Like, yeah, what happens? Oh, maybe I fall off the roof and break my arm. And when we're, you know, 50 or when we're an adult and we've got kids, we go, oh my God, they could fall off the roof and break their arm or die, right? We look at these situations and evaluate them differently. And so early on, we don't think about, yeah, okay, commute. I understand shorter commutes better, but what would it be like to have an hour commute every day? 
what's it like to show up and have a job you hate? We've had classes we hate, right? Go, oh, mm-hmm. This semester, I hate that professor, too much work. But you know there's an end, right? You know yeah. it's a couple hours a week and it ends in a few months. We haven't had that, wow, two years at a terrible grind. We haven't had to, as we have our job, we also necessarily have to take care of ailing parents and mm-hmm. juggle our spouse and all these other things. So we haven't had the context in which to recognize there's more to life than just, for example, money. Yeah. And you know, money and prestige, those are two things that we get as a kid. We've got our social capital with our peers, and money lets us buy more things. What else matters? Yeah, totally. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I think some of the jobs I hated actually were the one, the most invaluable learning experiences um, because they made me appreciate the ones that I love so much more. Uh, so it, I wonder for you, like, you know, over the course of your life, um, how your own personal definition of success and what matters has changed. I mean, you kind of have, you know, like we said, you've got the elite school degree, like a lot of the things that people traditionally label as success. From a career perspective, Admittedly, I didn't fully understand all this myself when I came out of school. And it wasn't until I had a similar experience to you. I was working at a company and I defaulted to it. I didn't want to work for big tech. I didn't want to work in consulting or finance. I wound up at a startup because that was kind of all there was left. And I found it was really enjoyable. Okay, I got lucky. I didn't intentionally seek it, but found the right place. And I was happily moving along in my job until one day my boss said to me, listen, I'm leaving the company. I'm going to go start a new one. And I'm taking some of the engineers with me. I'd love for you to come. He and the other founders had a falling out. I thought, oh, okay, well, that's interesting. Meanwhile, the other founder said, look, we know he's leaving. We know he's taking a bunch of people. He probably approached you. We like you. We'd love for you to stay. And all of a sudden, I had a decision to make. I had to figure out, which one of these was right for me. And that's why I had to consciously think about what do I want? What makes me happy today in the future? What's taking me in the path I want to go to? And that's why I began to really think concretely about answers to these questions. And then it turned out, I realized there's more than two options. This was the dot-com era. There's plenty of other companies as well. And so I looked around and found a third option. And that's where I went. So I hadn't thought about this probably until I was 25 or so, thinking about what it was that really made me happy in a job. And one of the things I start out with when I ask these questions in the book, it's not just about your job. I happen to really like what I do, and my job is a big part of who I am, but it's not true for everyone. And even if it is, your job is part of your overall life. So it begins with what do you want out of life? What do you want with your family life? What do you want with personal success? And then has a job fit into this? And it's important to always remember your job is part of something bigger your entire life. So one thing that we were talking about earlier was styles. And, you know, you write about mentors in the book. And that struck me in particular because Liz Wiseman, when she was here, she said something that always stayed with me. And she said, you know, your first boss is probably one of the most important choices you'll ever make. You're almost hiring them as much as they're hiring you. And I had a, a really good friend who also happened to be at MIT, I think, at the same time you were. And he was blessed with this incredible boss at Oracle who really was a launch pad for his career. I worked with bosses who were just awful. And that forever stayed with me. 
But now, you know, you have this sort of ability to approach mentors. And I, I only know this because Ryan Holiday has told me he gets ridiculous emails from people asking him to mentor them. So well, let's talk about finding a mentor because I was really lucky in that I found one by chance who happened to have been a guest here on the show and then just ended up, you know, uh, coming on and helping me do things that I never thought would be possible. You know, I never thought about the importance of the first boss. It probably is important because that's your your first impression, right? That's going to anchor in how you look at bosses or how you want to become a manager. And I happen to get very lucky that John Christensen, who was my first boss, uh, was fantastic. And I learned a lot from him. When it comes to picking mentors, I think a lot of people just say, oh, you're successful. Great. Will you be my mentor? Yeah. But that's not intentional enough. When you pick someone as your mentor, you really want to focus on what are you getting out of this? Why this person? What do you hope to gain? And recognize no no one mentor is going to give you everything you need. You might pick someone because he happens to be experienced and knowledgeable in your particular domain. You mm-hmm. might pick someone because she has a lot of qualities that you want to embody. You may pick someone just because they are a good instructor because you're going to just learn a lot. And it's not any one particular thing, but I can think of as a competitive ballroom dancer, one of the best instructors. He wasn't probably one of the top ranked ballroom dancers on the professional circuit, but he was an amazing teacher and taking classes with him. I learned so much. So you can pick people for different reasons. And so you might say, as you're looking at your career plan, when you say, okay, the next year or two, this is what I want to work on, this particular skill. Will this particular mentor help me develop that skill? If not, mm-hmm. they, that person might not be the right mentor at that time. Come back to them later. Remember as well, of course, I emphasize this in the book, it is a two-way street. Don't just think about this is what I get. You mm-hmm. want to support and help your mentor. Now, a lot of people yeah. say, well, I'm 23. I'm young. What am I going to offer this person? It could be a couple different things. One just might be connections. I know now that I'm in my 40s, I'm not as up on the latest tech. I know what TikTok is. I don't really use it. (laughs) Having my younger cousins, uh, they can keep me apprised of, yeah, well, this is how people are using TikTok or this is the latest thing. And so it's helpful, right? You you can provide a different perspective to your mentor. Within yeah. a particular company, those of us who are very senior, we see things at the 20,000 foot level. We don't always see all the details. And having someone who's down in those details and feeding us information directly, that can be helpful as well. So mm-hmm. there's lots of things you can provide. But remember, this is a two-way street. Yeah. I, I think one of the, the big mistakes that I've seen, I only know this because my mentor, Greg, was virtually a nobody. He had you know 150 followers on Twitter and was six weeks into his project. And he had by far the most invaluable impact on my life of anybody that I've worked with. And I think that there's this tendency to judge people by accolades or status based on the way they present themselves online. And I feel like people overlook people who could be invaluable to their life simply because they're judging them based on vanity metrics. Yeah, you know, it's so common and such a mistake to look for vanity metrics. Now, I understand why people do this, right? Because we have to take shortcuts. So, for example, 
when you look online, everyone is some leadership expert or coach or whatever. Say so there's literally 10,000 people all telling me they're a life coach, a leadership coach, an entrepreneur <laughs> coach. How do I narrow this down? Okay, well, this person has a certain number of followers, social proof. This person has a certain degree from a respected organization. Okay, that's you know some granting of authority. So we use these techniques to cut down, but really you can find some great diamonds in the rough if you understand how to look. If you say, what is it I really am sourcing for? How do I evaluate their ability to do this? I do this all the time with hiring because when I'm trying to hire someone out of Stanford, MIT, Berkeley, okay, great, they're gonna be good and lots of other people are competing for them. I can find some really good people. I found some great people never went to college, went to community college. And so their resume doesn't look as shiny. But then you say, aha, if I dig between, I see something here, I interview that person and say, wow, you're fantastic. You're just as smart as these other folks and you've learned this on your own. So if you put in the work, you can basically arbitrage for people who might not have those vanity metrics. Mm, Wow. So I I didn't want to get out of this conversation without asking you about the ballroom dancing. How in the world did you get into ballroom competitive ballroom dancing? Because that doesn't seem like you know, sort of the you know obvious hobby for people. Yeah, ballroom dancing. I was first forced to do it in sixth grade when my mother said, <laughs> "You have to take ballroom classes. Why? Because you need to know how to dance at your wedding." To which I said, "I will never dance ballroom at my wedding." Anytime I say never, it comes back to bite me, especially if I say it to my mother. (laughs) You and me both. I took those classes, promptly forgot them because, you know, the big problem you have when you take ballroom dancing in sixth grade is you have to touch girls and we all know girls are icky. So it was really not a great experience. Once I got to college, I remember a friend of mine, she tried to get me to do classes with the MIT club. I said, oh, been there, done that, don't want to do it. So the irony is being forced to take lessons earlier backfired because I probably would have wanted like, oh, cute girl, I want to take lessons with you. But I had such a bad experience (laughs) earlier. I said no. And I didn't do it until my senior year. I was set up with a girl through a friend of mine. We went on, uh, I took her to a semi-formal at my fraternity. And I thought, okay, we need to find something to do. During MIT's intercession period, There's all these fun activities. There's wine tasting and pipe fitting and skiing and learn origami or learn special relativity or new types of chemistry. Ballroom dancing is one of the more popular activities. I thought, well, this will be a fun activity for us to do together. It's on campus. It's easy. So we started dancing. It was a lot more fun. The music was a little more modern. The girls were no longer quite so icky. So I got into ballroom dancing. And even though she and I didn't date that long, I kept up with it, started dating another woman, and I got her to start doing ballroom. She decided after, I think, about a year that she wanted to compete, which apparently meant I decided I wanted to compete. (laughs) And from that point onwards, I'm so glad she got me into it because it was such a great experience. I competed all over the country. I went to national championships for seven years, uh, did some events overseas in England, and just had an amazing time. Skills, friends, fun. It was overall fantastic. Mm, Wow. 
Wow. Um, well, this has been really, really eye-opening and, and insightful and thought-provoking as I expected it would be. So I have one final question for you, which is how we finish all of our interviews at The Unmistakable Creative. What do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable? I think it can be one of a few things. I think it has to do with being unique and different, but there's a couple ways you can do that. One is to be a really deep expert in your area, right? Be that world-class leader, be that person who really understands this area and can see it in ways that others in the field cannot. Another is not necessarily being so deep, but pulling together lots of different ideas and concepts. I'm a big fan in being broad and learning in different areas, and then using that to take knowledge in one discipline and apply it to another and see something in a new way. See something differently, not because of your deep expertise, but because of your broad expertise. And so I think it's that new perspective that makes someone unmistakable. Amazing. Well, um, like I said, I can't thank you enough for taking the time to join us and share your story and your wisdom and your insights with our listeners. Uh, where can people find out more about you, your work, and uh, everything that you're up to? You can go to my website, thecareertoolkitbook.com. There you can learn more about the book as well as where to buy it, which is everywhere you'd expect. You can get in touch with me or follow me on social media. You can download the free app for the book. I know when I read a book, you quickly forget all those lessons about three weeks later. So the free companion app on Apple and Android will basically pop up each day a reminder to reinforce the lessons, or it will let you open it up and quickly go through those tips, say right before an interview or a negotiating event or a networking event. And you can also go to the resources page where you can find lots of other great books, links to other great websites, some downloads on the questions we talked about, downloads for how to create peer learning groups to better learn these skills. So all of this is available on the website, thecareertoolkitbook.com. Amazing. And for everybody listening, we will wrap the show with that. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.